Welcome to Ask the Therapist, the podcast that invites you into the therapist room to explore the world of mental health with me, your host, Sarah Rees. Hello and welcome to this episode of Ask the Therapist. Today I'm interviewing a guest who has a lived experience of hoarding disorder. They'd like to remain anonymous, but they are also a podcast host. The guest today runs a podcast called Overcoming compulsive hoarding with that hoarder podcast. It's a hugely insightful interview and conversation that we have today where the guest talks through her experience of developing hoarding disorder right from being a young child, her journey through mental health services, what's helped, what's been difficult, how she's been supported by friends, the shame that she experiences around her hoarding and how it's been dramatised in the TV industry and with the documentaries and programmes that are out there. And this is a very real conversation and very educational for therapists working out there in the field or for us generally to get a really good perspective of what hoarding is, how it impacts the person and how we can support people with hoarding because there's a lot to learn in this area. And I certainly got a lot to think about from this episode, and I know you will too. Thank you so much for coming on as a therapist. A while ago, I had the pleasure of being interviewed by you on your podcast, which is Hoarding with that Hoarder podcast. And you have recently celebrated 100 episodes. So firstly, a huge congratulations. Thank you very much. How does it feel to have done 100? Honestly, it felt quite epic. I'm not very good at giving myself credit for things but I really let myself just appreciate how much work I'd put in. And I'd hit 100,000 downloads a few weeks before that. So it all kind of, I just let myself enjoy the moment and think this actually, it's been great, but it's also been a lot of work and I need to recognise that. Absolutely. As a fellow podcaster, I have such admiration for your work. I am aware of how much work it is to host a podcast. And then talk about something that's not often talked about, um, especially when it's personal to you and something you live with. Because I'm aware in my podcast, I probably keep myself quite safe and I can't imagine going in deep with my struggles. So just I want to recognise your bravery for others who struggle with hoarding and to say a big thank you from the world of therapists and mental health workers who really, you know, it's just invaluable, this content where we hear and learn from people with lived experiences. It's so appreciated. Thank you. So firstly, how are you doing? Because it's been a while. I can't remember when we did our episode, but I think it was a while ago. It was a while ago. Um, Yeah, I'm doing okay, thank you. I'm doing all right. Can you begin by explaining to us what is hoarding? Yeah, so hoarding disorder used to be considered to be part of the kind of obsessive compulsive spectrum, but it's now been recognised as its own thing. It can coexist with a number of other things, including OCD, but doesn't necessarily. And basically, the technical definition is that it's where somebody acquires 
an excessive amount of possessions and stores them and it becomes unmanageable and that these items part of the the diagnostic criteria is that these items can be of kind of little value which is a strange criteria I always think because what makes something of value may differ from you to me to your next door neighbor but there are different severities of hoarding some people hoard quite minimally some people it's very severe there are people who hoard animals there are people who hoard their own bodily waste there's all kinds of different things some people hoard a very specific thing like newspapers other people hoard anything and everything but as somebody who is affected by it as somebody with it I try to kind of humanize it a bit more than the diagnostic criteria because the definitions tend to focus on the stuff, but it's less about the stuff and more about the emotions and the feelings and the reactions that cause us to amass this kind of stuff. Would you agree with it being a disorder? Yes, in the sense that Um, it becomes problematic in itself. Um, It causes problems. I think if somebody can't relate at all to hoarding, they might have seen some of those TV programs. Think about, we've all got certain items that we feel very strong attachments to, whether somebody gave it to you, who you love, or it reminds you of a particular time of your life, or you work really hard to be able to buy it. If hoarding, it's like having such strong attachments to everything. So it's not that I've got too much stuff because I've lost control of my home, although I have. I mean, I'm not going to, I don't pretty it up. It's that I've got too much stuff because I can pick up any item and see that it's essential in my life. So you really feel it? Yeah, it might be that it brings up a memory. And I think if I get rid of the thing, I'll forget the memory. It might be that I see a lot of potential in it. For ages, one of the things I couldn't get rid of was envelopes, like used envelopes. Because, you know, they often have like a squiggly pattern on the inside so that people can't see through them. Yeah, I was convinced I was going to turn them into like art projects. So you saw the value in it? Yeah. Completely. And other things, I think, well, if I throw this away, it's going to go to landfill and I can't, I don't like that thought. It's not a matter of picking up an item and responding to it in the same way as most people would respond to it, I think. And what do you think of the TV programmes that have focused on hoarding? I don't know if you've watched them or what your thoughts are. Do you think they're helpful or are they unhelpful? I'm not a fan of them. I find them quite exploitative. Um, I've seen a few. I don't watch them, you know, as a rule, but I have seen them. And I think in order to be good entertainment, they have to really upset a person sufficiently so that they make good TV. And I don't think it's productive. And I think it traumatizes the people involved. And I think it adds to this 
massive kind of shame and stigma that is already associated with hoarding. Yeah, and then that brings me on to: Do you think there are common myths around hoarding that, that some of which might be been exacerbated by these TV programs? Yeah, I think a big one is that it's laziness. And I did a whole episode on whether hoarding was laziness, in part because it was an accusation I was aiming at myself all the time. Just, you're so lazy, just, you know. But when I thought about it, I realised that if somebody was lazy and living in chaos, and somebody showed up and said, I'll tidy up, I'll get rid of your rubbish. If you're lazy, you'd think, brilliant, somebody's going to do it for me. But if you hoard you would react to that with absolute terror um, because you'd be losing control of these important things. I think another common myth is that it's a lifestyle choice. But I mean, I just I wouldn't choose to live like this if I didn't have this weird illness that makes my brain see stuff in this, you know, give importance to stuff in this way. And I think also Another big myth is that it's about materialism, which was also something I wondered about. But when I read about materialism, I honestly don't think it applies at all. It's about connections to stuff and fear of getting rid of things rather than kind of the materialist idea of wanting the newest or the latest or showing our stuff off to our friends. It's kind of the opposite of that, really. It sounds, as you talk, very emotionally based, like you feel it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you remember the point where you began to hoard unhelpfully in an unhelpful way? I do. Looking back, I can see signs kind of through my childhood even that I struggled to get rid of things. I couldn't make decisions about what to get rid of and I felt bad for things there's often this kind of anthropomorphism in hoarding like oh it will feel really sad if I throw it away but it was kept reasonably under control by just regular tellings off about the state of my bedroom I think the time it switched from being messy to being hoarding was a period in my early 20s when through various nightmarish circumstances. I had a period of about six months where I had no income and then a period of about another six months when I had very minimal income straight after that. And so I was suddenly in a position where it was true that if I got rid of something, I wouldn't be able to replace it. And that's always the fear with hoarding. What if I need it? You'll hear that a lot if you work with people who hoard. I can't get rid of this because what if I need it? And because I was in a place where I genuinely couldn't replace anything, I think that's when it's cemented into, from messiness into something more kind of clinical, I guess. And that's my clinical experience is that when people have had stuff and then they haven't had so like um my gran would keep it had been through the war and if I think right now I don't she wasn't hoarding in a very unhelpful way but she definitely hoarded and she used to I remember she used to keep what you used to have an apple bakewell tart in the little foil thing oh yeah yeah so much of <laughs> so many of those and things like that but they've been through the war where they have nothing exactly I think that generation had 
really good reason. You know, if you've been in a position where you have to make a, an entire Sunday dinner out of half a potato and a can of custard, I think you really do, you know, struggle to to waste anything. Yeah, and you can see how it's tied in with emotions as well because it's, it's trauma as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if somebody was listening to this and wondering if they struggle with hoarding or not, could you un- help us understand when it tips from being just like I wouldn't, I wouldn't say my grand's hoarding, you know, was problem for her or she just kept stuff but it wasn't impacting her lifestyle I suppose could you help us explain when it goes from that kind of level to unhelpful or causing problems in people's lives yeah I think for most people the sign would be that it's getting in the way of them living their life whether that is that they have parts of their home they can't use or whether it's because they can't invite anybody over, that kind of thing. There are people who hoard, who have less insight into their condition. Like, I I think I've always known it was a problem. I, I misunderstood it for a long time. I thought that what I had was an organisation problem, and if I could just organise my stuff properly, I'd be fine. And it took a while to realize that I had a volume problem um, and no amount of shelving, you know, could make it okay. But I don't think that was denial. I think that was just me working it out. But there are people who are very much in denial, very defensive of the way they live, and that's harder. But with those people, I think it's often the people around them. So if your children are saying, you're not seeing the grandchildren in your home because it's not safe. Or I won't let you look after my dogs when I go on holiday because I don't think the dogs are safe in your home. That kind of thing. That can be a sign even if you yourself are quite happy with the way you're living. Mm, that That makes sense. Yeah. So from your experience and the conversations you've had with your guests on your podcast, what do you think sits underneath hoarding? Do you know what the why is? It sounds you're so insightful for your experience. I can tell that you've been very reflective. If you talk to somebody who hoards, what I'm finding is there is nearly always either trauma or grief or loss in their history if not all three I see that again and again and again I also have a diagnosis of PTSD and I can also see that periods of grief like after my dad died you know didn't help but there's also there's a lot of fear for some people and I can relate to this to some degree the stuff around them is like a comfort blanket it makes them feel safe and the prospect of losing that comfort blanket is pretty terrifying but there's also like some quite practical cognitive stuff I would say I read once that clutter is a series of unmade decisions well that's a lovely interesting way to isn't it yes and I, I think with hoarding that's not the whole picture but I do think it's not irrelevant either I think often people who hoard struggle to make decisions and I think we can be quite risk averse and that manifests in I can't get rid of it in case I need it. And then there's just, again, on the practical thing, 
overwhelm. By the time I realized this was a real problem for me, it was so overwhelming that there was just so much to do that I didn't know where to start, didn't know how to start. And so I didn't even try for a really long time because of, yeah, because of that overwhelm. So I think there's a whole mixture of stuff and it's not quite as kind of difficult to answer as what causes depression. I think there are more, you know, there are more themes in this. It's not quite as wide ranging, but of course, every life story would be different. Yeah, so it's complicated. There's lots of overlapping elements, isn't there? And you talk about terror a lot. You've said that word a number of times. And, you know, I I wanted to ask you about what happens when people begin to consider getting rid of items, what things arise or comes up in terms of feelings. And I, it just sounds, you know, when you, just when you say the word terror. I think there is a lot of fear at the prospect of getting rid of things there can be worry about what will happen to the thing again that anthropomorphizing thing it will feel really rejected if I throw it away what will happen to it what if nobody else wants it we might hate the thought of it in landfill but also there can be like some things we keep in a kind of aspirational way I'm keeping this because one day I will repair it or one day I will make this thing um, but again, another thing that arises a lot is that kind of what if I need it? If, say, like in my situation when I was younger, it can just feel reckless to get rid of something, even if that thing is broken or wrecked or you've got 12 of them. That panic, I think, is really significant when people who hoard try or are encouraged to start getting rid of things. Do you still remember things that you've managed to get rid of then? Yes, I'm a lot better than I was. But yeah, there are certain things that 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 still stick out. I think even like I remember once finding a receipt and I looked at this receipt and it was for it was for a specific thing in a shop in a specific place. And I thought I bought that on the way to visit my dad and it was the last time I saw my dad and I was like well I've got to keep the receipt because of that and then I managed to talk myself around that like I'm not going to forget the last time I saw him if I get rid of this receipt and I wasn't struggling to remember it before I found the receipt and so the receipt is actually incidental in all of this but it took quite a bit of internal conversation to get there it's fascinating isn't it really how yeah, yeah. how much work it, it takes to be able to kind of maneuver your way through this yes maneuver is a really good word for it it's a lot of um I often say that like from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to sleep is just a series of hacks to get me through the day everything is like I need a trick to get out of bed and I need to trick myself into getting dressed and I need to talk myself into this. It's all quite exhausting. Gosh, it is. It's mentally exhausting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And how do you think, from your experience and working with people, how do you 
people that hoard feel about themselves? What comes up around that? I think a mixture of good and bad. I think people, some people might feel real pride in the fact that they see themselves as very thrifty or very environmental. They rescue things from the side of the road or they buy things from the charity shop and they they waste nothing. And that's something that's celebrated in society, isn't it? Reusing and recycling. But also they might feel pride in, I've got every copy of the Guardian newspaper since 1979, or I can always lend tools to my neighbours because I've got a spanner for every, I don't know what you use spanners for, but you know, every occasion. And I think it's confusing because of that kind of, those are things that you might celebrate, but it becomes this unmanageable thing. So the flip side of it is great amount of shame, massive shame. I talk a lot on the podcast about stigma and shame because it's not just that it makes you feel bad, although it does. It's that it stops people from asking for help. It stops people from telling anybody. It's why I podcast anonymously. It's why very few people in my real life know about this. So yeah, it's really complex and also overwhelmed. I think that's a very common reaction. So although there's the pride and the kind of doing good for the environment and that aspect of it, there's the the shame as well. So there's another part of people that just think this isn't acceptable in society. Is, Is that where the shame comes? Definitely, definitely. It's not great for your self-esteem to have to sleep on the floor because there's too much stuff on your bed or to not have access to your fridge or to lose your friends because you just can't invite them over it's and then you I occasionally make the mistake of looking at Twitter when one of those tv shows is on and I know that's the worst way to gauge public opinion on anything but um it does show that there are people who revel in talking about how disgusting and slobby and awful these people are. And it just does not help you then say to your best friend or your sister, I'm struggling with this. So people in your world don't really know. No, there's a kind of unspoken understanding amongst my friends that we just don't do stuff at my house. I think my best friend knows, although we've never talked about it directly. We've talked around it. I see a counsellor and she knows. But no, I hide it, I think, pretty well. Mm. You know, I wanted to ask about how, what advice you'd give to somebody who was supporting somebody who who was hoarding. And I was thinking about the support you get. Are you able to reach out for support? Certainly since the podcast, yes. But through that medium, really, people contact me. It's interesting that most people who contact me do so privately because they don't want to say anything publicly either. Through making the podcast and then talking to people who listen and also talking to the various kind of 
experts and specialists that I interview, that does help me a lot. And it took a long time for me to even tell my counsellor, and she has been great. But even that context where I really trusted her, and it should have been the obvious place to talk about it, but it still took me a long time. Well, they say that so many people come to therapy and never say the reason why they came. Yeah, I can believe it. I can believe it. It's such a shame, isn't it? Yeah, it's like they say about GP appointments. It's the thing that someone says as they're leaving the room. They just go, oh, by the way, and that's what they're actually there about. But they can't walk in and say, I'm having problems with... So they say, oh, I've got a bit of a sore throat. And then as they're leaving, they say, oh, by the just a little thing, just another thing. And that's where the truth is. Yeah. Yeah. What would help somebody open up, do you think? I think really listening to what's actually going on. I know I'm talking primarily to therapists here and that should, you know, go without saying. But I think it's about looking beyond the stuff and asking or listening to what the stuff means to that person and to not go in with like a cookie cutter approach you know oh I've treated that hoarder and they responded to this so let's do that again the reasoning can be completely different and then it's a manifestation of something but not necessarily the same thing and I think if at all possible, and it's not always possible, but if at all possible, don't rush them. If you can go at somebody's own pace, I think that minimizes the risk of further traumatizing them, especially because we know that trauma causes hoarding. And if they feel re-traumatized, their go-to safety behavior will be to acquire more stuff. And it sounds like that there's so much emotional intensity that when you push somebody or overwhelm them, then when you further increase that intensity of emotion, then that exacerbates the problem. So you'd want to be looking at kind of bringing down somebody's emotion and creating a safe base. And, you know, you say therapists might not need to hear this. I think we very much do need to hear this, you know, as well as people around that might, you know, have a family member or a friend that's struggling with hoarders, because especially CBT therapists, which is my primarily, that's how I'm trained, because sometimes we can go in with strategies and fix it. So I think this is it's so valuable to hear that, because it is slowing down, you know, that's something that we over time slow down the magics are in the is in the silence really that's where change really happens when people have space to to kind of open up if somebody was supporting somebody with hoarding aside from those things is there useful practical things they can do often what i hear from therapists is that it's great to have a bit of a team like you might know a professional organiser who you know is good with this kind of thing because professional organisers come in all shapes and sizes and some of them are brilliant at making your home that is almost perfect look absolutely perfect for Instagram that kind of thing and they are not they're great at what they do not disparaging that but they're not the people for this work 
Whereas if you get to know one or two professional organisers, maybe if a housing officer or social services or someone is involved, maybe with permission, you know, speak to them, work together with anybody who's involved, if at all possible, not ganging up on the person, but to try and cover all bases of what that person needs, if possible. I'm just thinking, you know, I've not watched those documentaries and programmes, but clips I have seen is somebody with gloves on and big black bin bags just going into somebody's house and chucking stuff away and just after they're talking to you just thinking how horrific and distracting that would be for somebody. If somebody's in a situation where their children are about to be taken away or where they can't be discharged from hospital because the home is unsafe or they're about to be evicted there can be an argument for that kind of clearance. But I would say in the vast majority of cases, it's not just that that would be a temporary fix, it would be a temporary fix. But that's where there's an impression that relapse rates in hoarding are, I hear all sorts of numbers, but I often hear like 97% relapse rate. And I looked into that and I found no kind of study where that came from. But I think if somebody has that kind of forced clearance, then they have not dealt with what's going on. And so they fill their home up again really, really quickly. Yes, because that's traumatising. So you get the overwhelm of emotions. Is hoarding sometimes about regulating emotions? Yes, I think there's a lot of that kind of managing uncertainty. Very linked with OCD, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. To- and tolerating what's it called distress tolerance. If people can't tolerate distress, then they can't get rid of the thing in case it causes them distress. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And how has your experience of mental health services been? It's been a funny mixture to be honest um i was in mental health services through a lot of my 20s and 30s with what was ptsd but was misdiagnosed as many different things along the way some of which weren't miles off like you know depression and anxiety is is not incorrect but it's just part of the picture but other things that were miles off But I got fairly steady emotional support for whatever was going on, whatever they were calling it at the time. But I never, ever talked about how things were at home, ever. And then it was eventually diagnosed as PTSD, and that was the one that made sense. It covered all bases. And by then, I was a lot better in many ways. And I was really lucky. I was referred to the specialist trauma team and had EMDR. What did you make of EMDR? I was so sceptical going in. This is a theme. I was so sceptical going in and it was surprisingly helpful. I was sceptical when I did the training and I was like, how is this working? I used to deliver it in the NHS and because I was one of the first people in that um, service to train in the MDI, I ended up doing an awful lot of it. And then the benefits for people are just phenomenal. It's it's so fascinating, isn't it? 
Yeah, because I got to a point where I felt like I was managing like my mood and my anxiety and all of those things reasonably well, but there was still some of the like core trauma stuff. I couldn't turn the light off, for instance. I'd slept with the light on, you know, and all of this. And it really just seemed to smooth that out. I still don't quite know how. I don't think anybody quite knows how. And so having had that, I was then discharged from mental health services, having never spoken about hoarding, but doing well in other respects. So through all that time, nobody knew. No. Gosh. And then a couple of years ago, I had some CBT specifically for hoarding. And again, went into it very sceptical. I was expecting that kind of one-size-fits-all thing. And what actually happened was, the way I see it is it's not a complete solution. But what it did for me is give me tools that I still use to this day. The big ones were things like, between sessions, we would agree something I would do in between. I would get rid of a bag of rubbish or I would do something. And I would immediately start panicking that I wouldn't be able to do it. But the way she framed it was, it's an experiment. It's not something you have to do. It's not something you can fail at. This is the key because you can't fail at an experiment. It either works or it doesn't. And that's not you. It's the experiment. And it still gives information. Mm, Completely. Yeah, that didn't quite work. Let's see what we can do instead, that kind of thing. And the other big thing it gave me was I was in a place where I would say, right, I'm going to do some tidying in the kitchen today. And then I would walk into the kitchen and go, nope, and walk out again. And what CBT did was get me to question that nope. What kind of nope is it? Is it an overwhelmed nope? If so, you've got tools for overwhelm. Is it a don't know where to start nope? Okay, in that case, this is what you can do. And as soon as I started going beyond my immediate shut off and saying what's actually happening here, I realised I was more equipped than I thought I was. So it sounds like it helped you get more flexible in your thinking. Yeah, I was very kind of, this is how I do things, full stop. Um, I can't do things any other way. And it made me realise that I can. And yeah, and so that was so helpful. And that was all NHS. I now see a counsellor privately for the kind of, when I said like CBT wasn't a complete solution for me, that was because there is still some of this trauma stuff. I felt like I needed something more exploratory. And so that's what I'm doing now. And I think it's nice. I think, you know, well-being and improving and recovery is about little bits of lots of different things. I think CBT is this fix-it-all, one-thing wonder is that's a big myth. You know, people need lots of different approaches. That's it. I spent a lot of my younger adult years, like I would read a self-help book and go, is this 
it? Is this the answer? And then it wouldn't be the answer. So I'd read another one. And it took me a long while to realize it's that chapter of that one and that bit of advice from that person. And it's all patching it all together, isn't it? Yeah. And we're constantly evolving, aren't we? And our minds and changing. And it's, it's a huge journey. If you'd like to find out more about life behind the scenes of private practice, then why not join us in our Therapist Corner Substack community? Therapist Corner on Substack offers an exclusive look behind the scenes of the business of therapy, bringing together diverse perspectives and exploring the how and why of the business of therapy. Visit therapistcorner.co.uk to sign up or for more information. Do you think the prevalence of hoarding is higher than what's in, I don't know what the statistics are, but, you know, is it like one in a thousand people or something? I don't, I don't know actually what they are. Do you know? I hear different numbers, but it's higher than you might think. I often hear numbers like 2%, 2.5% of the population, although it's difficult to know because everybody keeps it a secret. Yeah, right. So it's hard to know. I wonder if it's actually, you know, just thinking about this, the extent which which you've kept it a secret. You haven't told you're in, within kind of services for a long time and never mentioned it to anybody. So I'm just thinking you know gosh is this something that maybe should have been more on my radar in my 20 years of um you know working mental health services more than what it has been I suspect it that is the case for a lot of people but I also suspect that even if it had been a lot of people are so good at hiding it that you still might not have picked up on it. And as I have also wondered whether the numbers have gone up, and I suspect they have. I'm not basing this on any data, but I suspect they have because, first of all, if you look at how much our grandparents would buy compared to how much we buy now, the num- we buy so much more as a society not even as hoarders but you know just as society um and if we're doing that without also getting things out at the same rate I think that is bound to have an effect and I've also heard a few people speculate that COVID may have increased the prevalence because First of all, it was a massive trauma for a lot of people, whether we lost somebody to it or not. You know, it was a scary time for a lot of us. But also people were at home with nothing to do but go on Amazon and have a man bring stuff to the door every day. And what comes to my mind is how disconnected we are. Other people regulate our emotions and we were all alone. Yeah, I interviewed a professional organiser called Tracy McCubbin on the podcast. She's great and also um, is the child of a hoarder, which is quite an interesting... Some people who grow up in a hoard end up hoarding themselves and other people like Tracy go completely the other way and go, I'm going to organise the world. And she was saying that in lockdown, she was driving around and the only people on the road were Amazon trucks. Yeah, a guilty as charged. And I've recently done it with Vinted. And because I feel like I'm doing a little bit of good in the world. Exactly. 
exactly. For me, charity shops are a real, I have to be so careful with charity shops. They're a proper like danger zone for me. And it's, I've worked out again through doing the podcast. I've learned all this stuff that it's like the perfect combination of a bargain plus recycling plus giving money to cancer research or something. It's all of those things combine to make that bit of my brain go, I, I must buy this. Yeah, that is so much dopamine. I mean, I, not that long ago, I have pulled myself away from it, but I was like, I just needed to know that there was a parcel in the post. And I didn't know professional organisers were a thing. Yeah, it's a relatively new profession. I would say maybe the last, I would say 20 years ago it was rare and then 10 years ago it started catching on a bit. But there are people who will come into your office and organise your office. There are people who will work with hoarders sorting things one at a time. And there are people who will make your almost perfect home absolutely beautiful and everything in between. Like we said before, there's probably a mix of people that listen to this podcast. It's probably about 50% people who are interested in, in mental health generally and therapy. And then there's lots of therapists as well. So is there anything else we need to know, do you think, or that you'd like us to hear? I think if somebody discloses to you that they hoard, it, I think appreciate that that can be a really big deal <laughs> and be kind of extra conscious of your reaction. If you're the kind of person who gives a lot away on your face, um, which I didn't think I was until three years of Zoom meetings have taught me that I do react with my face in a way I didn't know I did. Because people will be looking for even a hint of judgment or disgust. I think like when anybody's disclosing anything they feel ashamed of. But I think it's also important to say that I expect that at times we can make for quite difficult clients. I think we might dig our heels in. You might spend an entire session helping somebody make a decision about one book or one t-shirt. And I think that's partly because by the time we seek help, it's really entrenched useful at slowing it down and I know when we work with um, OCD I mean often and I think because of the awareness I'm seeing people earlier which is, is really good we want to see people as early as possible but not that long ago it generally be it's kind of 20 years people have been struggling with OCD before they come for therapy. Absolutely I think the other thing is that I have a regular guest on my podcast called Dr. Jan Eppingstall, and she is great. And she's a counsellor in Australia. And she had, had, she did her PhD in hoarding. And she is a mine of incredible information. But I sometimes have like listeners say to me, but like, there's nobody like Jan near me. And I think it's important to say that you don't have to have a PhD in hoarding to work with hoarding clients. I think if you're approaching it with like, what's the meaning rather than how do we organise the stuff? I think that's a great start. But at the same time, any background information you can gather 
can only help, I think. Yes, we have to, as therapists, keep educating ourselves and, and understanding about things. But what we know is that there's research that says that it's more to do with the relationship you have with your clients. It's a collaborative approach. Like you say, you have to you have to feel safe and like this person can hold you and that you can be trusted and you're not going to be judged. And so it's that relationship that's hugely important. And that kind of trumps a lot of the techniques. I'm sure. Yeah, I've got a friend who is training to be a counsellor at the moment and she was talking to me about this about unconditional positive regard was what we were talking about and that importance of the relationship and it made a lot of sense to me. You know you've done a hundred episodes now which is just absolutely amazing and I'll share all the links to the your podcast as well so people can listen because it sounds like you're interviewing some amazing people there's lots of valuable content there what are some of the key things you've learned over a hundred episodes what's opened your eyes do you think I think that this is a problem that is way more multi-layered and nuanced than I had ever imagined. Somebody said to me the other day, you must be running out of things to talk about. And I would have thought I would be, but there is always <laughs> there's so, so many kind of complex interlinking factors that I feel like I'm never, well, I mean, I may one day say I have now talked about everything there is to talk about about hoarding, but I don't feel I'm close to that yet. The other thing on a more personal level is that having a weekly podcast where I have to talk about the thing I previously couldn't talk about at all helps to keep me accountable and it stops me from going into denial and pretending there's no problem. I hadn't foreseen that, but it's a happy side effect that I can't go back into, oh, it's fine, I just need to organise a bit, because weekly I have to say something reasonably coherent about hoarding. Wow. And I'm just wondering, I mean, not everybody is going to want to start a podcast on something, but that is kind of like really keeping it at the front of your awareness all the time, isn't it? I'm just wondering how people could do that if they don't want to do a podcast, because it's hard work, isn't it? It is hard work. I mean, something like a diary, keeping a diary, or maybe having a friend you can check in with. Even if you don't want to tell them the entirety of the problem, you can just say, can I tell you every Friday whether I've done some tidying up that week? And just knowing you've got that check-in. The CBT therapy, it sounded like that was part of what was really helpful, that accountability, that kind of right. In between now and when I next see you, you're going to work on this. Mm. Yeah. And if somebody was listening that wanted some a couple of practical things that people could do, because if somebody's listening and they are, they're aware that, okay, maybe I am hoarding, what are a couple of practical things they could take away? I think if you know somebody who's hoarding or you're working with somebody who's hoarding, try and be led by them. I think often we might look at someone's home and think, well, obviously the priority is clearing their bed so they can sleep in their bed. But if they don't care about whether they sleep in their bed or not, they quite like sleeping on the sofa, they're not going to be motivated to get going on it. 
if it's you yourself who's hoarding and you don't quite know what to do, I think there's something important about making yourself gradually face up to the fact that you are. It's a really difficult thing to accept. And even if you can't tell anybody else, making yourself face up to it, I think, is important. How can somebody do that, do you think? How, I suppose it's seeing the reality. Because, I mean, I talk a lot about awareness is the key, isn't it? And that once you're aware of a problem, you can really see it. And that is, it's painful. I suppose that's what I'm getting at. It is. It's painful, but it's also painful, I have come to learn, not to tackle it. Our surroundings are our surroundings. We live with them sometimes 24-7, you know, if we work from home or whatever. It's easy to stop noticing that in order to get into the front room, you have to step over a box or that, oh no, you can't put anything in the freezer because you can't open the freezer. And you can quite quickly adapt. And I think there's something quite powerful in making yourself just mentally note every time something is an annoyance or an obstruction in your life. And I think once you start kind of clocking, for me at least, once I started kind of clocking that kind of thing bit by bit, I stopped over time being able to ignore that it was actually a problem. Yeah, so I think we're back to kind of journaling, aren't we, which raises awareness of patterns of our minds and behaviour, just kind of spending a bit of time with your own mind, slowing down. If you're not having therapy, that's, that's really useful. Thank you. To anticipate a question, because it's probably the question I get the most, is where do I start? And there are many potential answers to that. But what I've started to incorporate for myself is it all has to be done. So it doesn't massively matter where you start because it all has to be done. So if you've got something that's really bugging you, if you can't access your bath and you really like taking baths, then start there. That makes sense. But if you've not got a particular kind of pain point, then just whatever's in front of you, because it all has to be done. And so, yeah, just get going. And that, I mean, I'm making that sound easy and it's not, but if what's holding you back is not knowing where to start, then trust me, it doesn't massively matter where you start. And one thing I use, I use it with um, some of the teenagers that I see when they are struggling to get going with their revision, that you use the five minute rule, you just do it for five minutes. And then if you you really can't bear it, you stop. The idea is getting started is the hard one. Once you just take action, you'll get into momentum quite quickly. You can build that momentum up. And I'm curious about what's next for your podcast as well. You're still doing it weekly? and Still doing it weekly. I'm trying in my life, and this includes the podcast, to get better at not over planning everything. And so whereas when I started, I would have episodes planned out for weeks and weeks and weeks. I'm trying to do more, take it as it comes, see what arises that week, whether for me or whether somebody sends me a question or whether I read some interesting research. 
But the plan is to keep interviewing fascinating people with insight into an area. I interviewed a philosophy professor who specialises in shame. Her entire life's work is looking at shame. Gosh, who was that? She's called Luna Dolazal and she's a fascinating woman. And I, you know, I've interviewed, I've interviewed you, I've interviewed various therapists, researchers. When I spot something interesting, I just drop them a line. And if they're keen, we do it. But yeah, my plan is to keep it going, keep it weekly. I think if I drop off the schedule, everything would fall over. But I think if I keep on the schedule, yeah, it seems to be going well. Do you think you'll do a book or anything? It feels like there's a book in here. It has occurred to me. I'm not quite sure what that would look like, but it's it's possible. I think so, definitely. The final question that I ask all my guests is, if you could go back to your 15-year-old self, what would you say to her and what would you tell the younger version of you? This might sound like a departure from what we've been talking about, but it's actually not in the context of we're all very complex human beings. What I would tell her is you are gay and it's fine. Because at 15, I was terrified because I was having these feelings that none of my friends seemed to be having and that I knew without question were unacceptable. And so I was terrified that I might be gay. And I pushed it down and pushed it away. And it eventually took leaving home, first of all, and then meeting other gay people and realising that it was fine for me to get to that point. But the reason it's, I mean, that whenever this question comes up, you know, like in the pub, doesn't it? Sometimes what would you say? That's this is always my answer because in the context of trauma and shame and all of those things, growing up believing that you are fundamentally wrong is damaging. And it may not be the biggest trauma in my life, but it left a mark. And to be able to say, first of all, you are, so you can stop wondering but importantly, and it's fine, I think, yeah. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Well, uh, what a wonderful conversation. I've enjoyed it. I I could ask you so much more. Do you have kind of an end goal in mind? Do you have kind of a destination or where you're trying to get to? Or are you just on the journey of your recovery? I've learnt, if nothing else, that, de-hoarding takes about 30 times longer than you think it will (laughs) and so all my kind of I'm when I kind of started I was like okay 12 months is a really long time I'll have it sorted within 12 months and I wasn't close and now it's you know several years later and I'm so I think it's all about the bit by bit I think if I if I start looking at the whole that's when I panic and shut down so instead my goals are like I want to be able to walk into that room without tripping over something and then when I can do that you know I get another smaller 
it's the other ways that overwhelm that I've, you know, that I talk about just hits and I shut down. So you're just keeping moving forward, which is what we all need to do. Keep working at it. Keep moving forward. That's lovely. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for asking me. I really appreciate it. So if people want to follow you and listen to this amazing podcast, where can they find you? Yeah, so my website is overcomecompulsivehoarding.co.uk and all my episodes go up there, but there's also links to all my social media sites there. Or if you just want to listen, if you search for Overcome Compulsive Hoarding with that hoarder in whatever podcast app you use, that should pop up. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Ask the Therapist. I'll be discussing all you've heard in this episode and more over in the Therapist Corner community on Substack. To join me there, just click on the link in the show notes. Until next time, take care of your mental well-being as you continue on the path to becoming the best version of yourself.